daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. China's first domestic-built cruise ship has left its dock for the first time. France has reportedly rejected a NATO proposal to set up an office in the Japanese capital of Tokyo. Diplomats from China and the United States have held discussions in Beijing on refining ties and properly managing differences. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, download our podcast by searching World Today. China's first domestic-built cruise ship has left the building dock for the first time. Two trial voyages will be conducted in the following month before its delivery by the end of the year. Construction started in 2019. Wu Bin reports from Shanghai. First, I would like to start with the name. That is very special. The name is Adora Magic City. At first, it is, its name is called Adora, and then it changed its name to Adora Magic City. And some of you may know that Magic City is actually the nickname of Shanghai. So the name itself shows the birthplace of the cruise ship. The ship is over 300 meters long and over 37 meters wide, and has over 25 million components, double the time needed to build an aircraft carrier, and the. Ship is more than just being large. As a cruise ship, it's extremely complex to build. For example, as a cruise ship, it's also of vital importance to provide passengers a cozy experience on board. That was Wu Bin reporting from Shanghai. Now, for more on this、uh, domestic-built cruise ship as well as China's high-end manufacturing industry, I earlier had a conversation with Victor Gao. He is chair professor at Suzhou University. Now, first up, tell us the level of technology and craftsmanship that are needed for building cruise ships. Why is it considered one of the most advanced shipmaking technologies? Thank you very much for having me. By today, China is already one of the most important shipbuilding nations in the world. In terms of the most、uh, top-grade and luxurious、uh, cruise ships. Uh, it really requires all the skills and all the expertise, as well as the most advanced、uh, technologies, as well as materials of all kinds, to make sure that a cruise ship is a viable、uh, option.、Uh, mainly because the cruise ship, by the highest standard, is very large in size, and also it contains multiple functions, and、uh, also it. Cater services to thousands of passengers on the one hand, and also most likely thousands of staff. So, in the normal sense of the word, a cruise ship would have around ten thousand people on board.、Hmm. And in terms of providing services and all the necessary requirements for the passengers as well as staff, it is. Really, a very heavy workload, and you really need the most sophisticated quality of the cruise ship in itself, as well as all the hardwares and softwares to make sure that a top-notch cruise ship will be able to be a complete commercial success. So,、uh, Doctor, how do you see some of the features of the Adora Magic City?、Um, uh, I mean, what's special about it? I understand. First of all, it's the most advanced cruise ship in the world today, involving the most sophisticated technologies and applications of all kinds, especially in terms of navigation、uh, technologies and communication technologies. This means that, in addition to the traditional hardware part of the equation, that is the shipbuilding in itself, it. Will also require the most sophisticated and the most advanced applications of all kinds. In a sense, this ship is like a floating fortress,、mm. and it can provide services of all kinds to thousands, if not even in excess of ten thousand people on board, making sure that the cruise ship, wherever it sails, is safe and is. Uh, providing all the necessary services in the highest quality possible, and is in constant communication 
with all the port authorities throughout the route that the cruise ship will need to make port calls,、mm-hmm. as well as in case of emergency, for example, it will handle all the weather conditions and communicate speedily with the naval ships or other rescue ships of all kinds to make sure that absolute security and safety will be guaranteed. Well, we understand that today the ship is leaving its building、uh, dock. So, how important is this step in the total process of、uh, cruise ship manufacturing? Well, as I mentioned, China by today is one of the most important shipbuilding nations in the world, including all kinds of ships, both civilian ships as well as naval ships.、Mm. And you mentioned aircraft carriers,、uh, the LNG ships. As well as you know, cruise ships of all kinds, and I think、uh, today's、uh, sailing means that China has reached the apex of、uh, cruise ship building, which is traditionally not a top quality or top brand for China, because China has been very much focused on industrial ships and、uh, transportation ships and、uh, naval ships of all kinds. But I think today's event indicates. That China has been really moving very fast into the top-notch and top-quality cruise ship manufacturing in the world,、mm. and I would say going forward, China will capture an increasingly important market share in the top-quality cruise ships of all kinds. Catering to the demands in different parts of the world.、Mm. Well,、uh, so Doctor, what benefits will the、uh, Adora Magic City bring to Shanghai as, as well as、uh, its surrounding areas? Well, first of all, I think、uh, to have a cruise ship in itself is basically creating a hub for tourism as well as the related industries of all kinds, and then. Other things being equal, to have a major cruise ship、uh, around, moving around in different countries、uh, according to its set routes, for example, actually promotes mutual understanding and、uh, friendship and、uh, good neighbourhood. And、uh, I would say, in the East Asian region involving countries like China, Japan, the Republic of Korea, and China's Taiwan province, as well as the ten ASEAN nations. And further beyond, for example, moving down to the South Hemisphere, linking with countries like Australia or even New Zealand, further, for example, into the Indian Ocean or beyond, you are talking about a tremendous amount of market demand going forward.、Uh, some of which is already in existence, but much of which is still dormant. And I would say, going forward, the、uh, regional as well as the global cruise Line business is really going up, and it requires the best ship possible.、Mm-hmm. It requires the best services, the service providers of all kinds, and also a very important solution to deal with specific conditions in this part of the world in terms of ocean currents, for example, weather patterns, and the specific requirements of the passengers from. This part of the world, so I'm very confident about the future of the cruise line business in itself, and as far as Shanghai is concerned, it will become an important hub, and also in terms of manufacturing and production of the most sophisticated, top-notch cruise lines in the world.、Mm. Uh, one more thing,、uh, we understand that、uh, building cruise ships are actually a very important part of、uh, a country's capability in high-end manufacturing. So, what does、uh, Adora Magic City tell us about China's capability in that area, and why is high-end manufacturing important for a certain country? Well, first of all, a cruise line business is, to a very large extent, a luxury business. Because、uh, it caters to a very specific groups of tourism, and、uh, then you are also talking about repeat、uh, tourism because some of the tourists、uh, getting experience from one cruise line experience will want to come back again. And normally, it involves families. It invo- involves large groups of friends, for example, joining uh, uh, experience together. Uh, uh, therefore, I think in terms of the quality of the ship, on the one hand. 
the uh, good amenities of all kinds provided uh, by the cruise line, as well as absolute amount of security and safety, for example, and also in terms of the comfort and convenience, and to a very large extent, the kind of luxurious lifestyle to be provided, and also affordability, because not all the cruise line passengers actually want to pay top dollar for the services they expect from the cruise line businesses, then you are talking about a complete new mode of life. It's a new lifestyle, in a sense, and it will really stimulate the economic development in the regions involved, as well as all the ports of call Mm -hmm. that the cruise line is expected to make Mm -hmm. during its lifespan of, let's say, three decades, four decades, or sometimes even longer than that. That was Victor Gao, chair professor at Suzhou University on China's first domestic-built cruise ship, Adora Magic City. Coming up, we'll take a look at France's rejection of the idea of a NATO office in Tokyo. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. France has reportedly rejected a NATO proposal to set up an office in Japan's capital, Tokyo. The Financial Times reported that French President Emmanuel Macron believes that the Transatlantic Security Alliance should remain focused on its own North Atlantic region. NATO and Japan have been discussing the possibility of a Tokyo office since then-Prime Minister Shinzo Abe visited NATO headquarters in 2007. Japan opened a NATO branch office in Brussels in 2018. Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida became the first Japanese leader to attend a NATO summit last year. Now for more, we're joined by Joseph Syracuse. He's adjunct professor at Curtin University in Australia. Thank you, Professor Syracuse, for joining us. It's good to have you back on the show. Thank you. Now, Professor, first up, uh, you know, for our listeners, walk us briefly through the background against which NATO was formed. What has been its main mission? Well, NATO was formed in 1949. It was signed by about uh, 12 powers in Washington. And it was the um, first peacetime security treaty for the United States since 1800. It was a big deal. And the United States... uh, got involved in NATO, which is a collective security organization, because the United Nations um, had a security council they didn't trust. That is, uh, Russia had a veto power. So it it joined NATO ostensibly to uh, promote freedom and cooperation, but it was really designed for two reasons. Mm. It was designed to keep the Russians out of Western Europe and to keep the Germans down. You know, at that time, Germany was um, within NATO itself, and so, you know, can you trust Germans after World War II? So, you know, it was to keep an eye on the Germans and keep the uh, the Russians at bay. And it lasted till, uh, well, it lasted until the, the Cold War was over. And then it uh, was looking for new missions. Wound mm-hmm. up in the Balkans. It wound up in over Libya. It wound up in Afghanistan. It was always looking for something else to do. And <laughs> also it has created about 10 non-member um, partners, that is, it's looking for other nations to cooperate, and that's what this was about. Mm-hmm. This was about uh, mission creep. This is about NATO uh, moving into different places, and uh, Macron, frankly, doesn't like it. Mm. Well, is it fair then, Professor, to say that NATO was created for the purpose of maintaining U.S. military hegemony around the world? Oh, not around the world. It was designed to uh, mm. protect uh, Western Europe from the Red Army, which uh, mm. there, there was nothing between, you know, uh, Germany and the English Channel. I mean, except mm. the Red Army. I mean, it was designed as an anti-Russian, anti-Soviet thing. Mm. It wasn't designed to go around the world. You want to go around the world, you look at the South Korean Treaty, you look at the Australian Treaty, the Japanese Treaty, mm. and that kind of thing. 
NATO has specific limits. Now, after 1991, when the Soviet Union disappeared, mm. a lot of good people, including George Kennan, the diplomat, mm-hmm. and uh, Mitterrand, the French prime minister or president, they all thought that NATO had outlived its usefulness. Mm. And because at that point, uh, NATO didn't serve any purpose. Uh, Russia had been tamed, or that is, the Soviet Union had disappeared. And a number of people were arguing, including Will, uh, Bill Burns, who's now, I think, um, ambassador to China. He, yes. he, he argued um, he, he argued that this was an antagonistic thing. This would just drive the Russians crazy later on. And it did. I mean, ostensibly. That's why uh, Putin went into Ukraine, because uh, NATO kept creeping up on its borders with its its advanced weapon system and the like. But uh, uh, NATO in Asia doesn't make any sense, okay? NATO wasn't in Asia Mm. during the Vietnam War for Mm. that same reason. So it it just doesn't make any sense. Well, then, Professor, what do you think are the purposes of both Japan and NATO in discussing a possible Tokyo office? What are they trying to get for themselves? Well, uh, NATO has a, a very aggressive uh, leaders, including General Secretary Stoltenberg, who wants uh, NATO to uh, sort of link up with these non-members around the world you know, to get more power. Mm-hmm. And for Japan, um, Japan likes the look of NATO because, uh, I'll tell you a little secret, I don't think any of these people trust the United States guarantee mm-hmm. to come to rescue. I mean, the the American guarantee, the uh, enhanced uh, nuclear deterrent uh, doesn't look so good to a lot of people. Of course, France has its own nuclear weapon. It's not worried about any of that kind of stuff. So it's it's politically ambitious for some people in NATO to stretch its its meaning, that is mission creep. And the Japanese like the idea of having uh, uh, maybe one more nation or a grouping on their side. Keep in mind that only last year, uh, uh, Macron literally invented the European political community, Indeed. which already has 42 members, which is going to overtake NATO within a couple of years. So all these, it, it's about multipolarity. And, and Macron can see the future. Joe Biden cannot see the future. And a number of Republicans who may get into office uh, have no particular interest in going to Europe anyway. Now, Professor, we understand and, and uh, you know, as the world can see in Asia, especially, you know, East Asia, Southeast Asia, have enjoyed a few decades of uh, peace and stability. The economy has been very strong for the past few decades. But this is all after years of uh, wars and also sometimes civil wars and sometimes uh, colonial Uh, times in certain countries in the region. So Asian people really treasure peace and treasure stability. Um, If, let's talk about if, uh, if a Tokyo office of NATO is established in the region, what bad precedents will it uh, set, you know, and in the region and what bad consequences will it bring to the peace and stability of Asia? Well, I, I think for a lot of nations who are trying to navigate between Beijing and Washington, I think it'll make them kind of stressful, actually. I mean, mm-hmm. it'll create great pressure. Uh, keep in mind that uh, there are uh, 30 members of NATO, and each one of them has a veto power. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to happen. The fact that it was going to happen is what caused Macron to uh, to do something about it. Macron's just come back with from China, mm. and he's trying to play the uh, the balancing act. I mean, Macron sees himself, sees France as the great, as the honest broker. I mean, Macron would like to uh, to shepherd along with the Chinese a ceasefire in in Ukraine and things like that. Mm. Macron is not beholden to Washington. He sees Washington as a little reckless right now. And and so, you know, it it disturbs his plans greatly. But I think uh, if that office were to go there, I think it would cause cause a great deal of stress in Asian capitals. But it's not going there because of the unanimity principle in NATO. And Macron has made it very clear that he is his own boss. He's not taking orders from Joe Biden or anybody else. Mm. Well, then, Professor, let's talk about, you know, the things NATO has done since uh, its establishment. I mean, NATO, the purpose, uh, as you mentioned, and, you know, elaborated by some of the officials is to contain and to deter, right? But then the, right. out, the outbreak of the war in Ukraine 
makes uh, it evident, you know, the mission of NATO hasn't been uh, accomplished. The war wasn't prevented. Um, so how how would you respond to that? And, you know, <laughs> will, will it, you know, be able to, to uh, to to create the kind of condition that these officials uh, claim it will have in the Asia Pacific region. Uh, no, I don't think so. Now, look, mm -hmm. after the Cold War ended in 1991, NATO did get involved in uh, uh, Libya and got involved in the war on terror right. in the early 2000s and things like that, and it got involved in uh, sort of some interesting things about keeping uh, uh, asylum seekers away from European borders. It, it, it found some usefulness, but NATO doesn't really have a role outside of Europe. As a matter, you know, it's always been looking for something else to do. I mean, keep in mind that NATO is an institution. Mm. You know, it has a medical has a medical uh, uh, program, and it has uniforms. It has a building. It has a pension program. I mean, NATO, NATO, <laughs> NATO is going to go program. on, right. whether the Cold War ended or not. It has its own its own imperative, as a matter of fact. Uh, but look, uh, I think uh, NATO between 2000 and 2014, mm -hmm. when the mm -hmm. Russians went into Crimea, and then later on, I think it did fail. I mean, what, what Putin wanted was to sit down with NATO, particularly the United States, and talk about the balance of power, that is, uh, the balance of nuclear power in, in Eastern Europe. I mean, he, he wanted to talk about the same things as, 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 as uh, John Kennedy mm -hmm. and Nikita Khrushchev wanted to talk about when Russians brought missiles within 90 miles of the United States. And, and NATO was not open to that conversation. Well, and so mm -hmm. I, I blame NATO for starting that war in the first instance for failing to calm Putin down. And of course, Putin invading uh, uh, Ukraine, you know, mm -hmm. he, he didn't think he had anything. He didn't think he had any other choices. But the West did not give him any other choices. Well, Professor... Then we're also talking about we need to think about the perspectives and the willings, uh, the wills of, uh, you know, the countries within the Asia Pacific region. Uh, I mean, not, not I mean, not one single country, let's put it that way, wants to choose a side, as you hinted earlier, between the United States and China in their uh, competition. But overall, how do you think countries in Asia will want their security affairs to be handled? Professor. Well, they, they're going to want to see more maturity from the United States. They want to see more uh, compromise, more willingness to to deal with Putin and to deal with China in an even manner. I mean, you know, China's a great power. It has the balance of power has shifted greatly. The United States has to uh, adjust to new circumstances and. You know, what the United States has been doing the last couple of years is jumping up and down about Taiwan. And I have argued in a, uh, you know, in a hundred places that mm. Taiwan was settled by Ma Chairman Mao and Richard Nixon a long time ago. That's off the table. Mm. Maybe problems in the South China Sea. That's something else again. I mean, um, I, I think uh, uh, the Asian powers that are at least kind or predisposed to Washington would like to see uh, – uh, a little more maturity in the government. And of course, every time they deal with Washington, what, what does the Biden administration say? Puts heat on them to uh, to stand up against uh, uh, China and Taiwan, which is not a, a non-problem. And it put heat, puts heat on them to put more pressure on Putin. Putin's not worried about uh, Washington. And uh, China's not worried about the United States when it comes to Taiwan because it's going to have its way there. So, But in any way, they're looking for... Um, some leadership from Washington. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm very disappointed that we haven't seen it. Mm. Well, uh, we have 30 seconds before we let you go, Professor. But uh, how do you think uh, this discussion of uh, NATO Tokyo office will complicate Western desire of China's mediation of the war in Ukraine? Well, I, I, I think it's going to help France and, and China this way. <laughs> the office is not going to open, mm. and Macron has personally seen to it that it won't open. So his bona fides, that his his willingness to work with Beijing, is still on the table. Well, hopefully, let's um, let's just pray for peace, um, in, not only in Asia but also around the world. Thank you, Professor. That was Joseph Syracuse from Curtin University in Australia. Coming up, senior Chinese and U.S. officials meet in Beijing. We'll be right back after a short break.
I am Dan Wang, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China. The world today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Diplomats from China and the United States have held discussions on refining ties and properly managing differences. Chinese Vice Foreign Minister Ma Zhaoxu met senior U.S. officials in Beijing and reiterated China's position on major issues, including the Taiwan question. Both sides described the talks as being constructive and productive. They agreed to maintain communication. U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Asia and Pacific Affairs and a senior director of China Affairs at the White House National Security Council have visited China. Now, for more, we're joined by Dr. Zhao Hai, Director of International Political Studies at the National Institutes for Global Strategy, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thank you, Dr. Zhao, for talking to us again. It's good to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. Now,、uh, Doctor, first up,、uh, is the timing particularly important here? How would you read into that? Yeah, I think the timing is、uh, quite interesting. It's very important because last time, if you remember,、mm. uh, Mr. Crittenbrink、uh, was here about six months ago.、Uh, back then, in December 2022,、mm. he was preparing for、uh, Secretary Blinken's visit to China. Supposedly, that、uh, should happen in February of this year. But because of the so-called、uh, balloon incident,、right. uh, that was canceled. And this time he visited again,、uh, along、uh, again with uh, uh, Barron,、uh, the National S-、uh, Security Council、uh, senior director、uh, for China.、Mm. And that means that、uh, the high-level、uh, communication and、uh, visits could happen again in the near future, including probably a restored trip of、uh, Secretary Blinken coming back to China. And also, possibly, there are other potential、uh, U.S. cabinet members visiting China, including、um, a Treasury Secretary and also a Commerce Secretary,、uh, or even other high-level officials.、Mm. So, at this particular time, I think、uh, that the U.S. officials' visit、uh, showing that、uh, the lines of communication between the two sides are expanding,、mm. and in the future, I think there will be more、uh, visits and more communications. Uh, between uh, the two sides.、Mm. Well, doctor, it's it's already been become a common practice for the two sides to issue readouts after meetings,、uh, which、uh, would read very different from each other. So let's compare the readouts from both sides this time.、Uh, what do you say?、Um, I think、um, last time,、uh, just a short while ago,、uh, the two sides, uh, uh, Director Wang Yi and also National Security Advisor. Uh, uh, met with uh, uh, each other in、uh, Vienna,、oh, right. and if you、mm. compare their readouts afterwards, they're very similar, almost identical.、Mm. Uh, that shows that the two sides have more、uh, agreement on how to uh, public, uh, publicize the results afterwards. And this time, same same thing happened.、Uh, both sides' readouts are very similar.、Uh, they say this is a very candid,、uh, productive, and constructive meeting. Uh, after they met with each other, so that's a, a good good sign, at least showing that both sides are agreeing on how to uh, show uh, to signal the outside、mm-hmm. uh, the progress of the meeting.、Mm-hmm. If you read、uh, read into their their both、uh, their readouts, the com- common、um, issue is、mm-hmm. about Taiwan.、Right. So the American side, of course, said they talk about cross-strait issues with China, but the Chinese side emphasized. That we reiterated our principal standing on this critical issue.、Mm. So that means Chinese side showed a very strong uh, position uh, on the Taiwan issue, and、uh, basically, I believe Chinese Chinese side must express concerns about U.S.、Uh, hollowing up the、uh, One China policy and warn the U.S.、Uh, to stop、uh, further encouraging the pro-independence Taiwan forces.、Mm. But on the U.S. side, of course.、Uh, They do not talk about the Taiwan issue. They talk about cross-strait issue. That means they're still trying to basically internationalize this issue, and emphasize that Taiwan Strait is, is an important trading road and is important to other East Asia or Asia Pacific countries. 
So I think there are still differences between the two sides if you read between the lines. However, uh, the ability to talk about these issues uh, at least shows that the two sides are now emphasizing uh, the very important uh, common ground, you know, the very important uh, questions. And in the future, these questions should be on the table and have further discussion. Mm. Well, thank you for you know pointing out the complexity of this issue from these very simple sentences. Um, also, uh, we the world has been watching, you know, the development of U.S.-China relations uh, over the past few months, especially after the balloon incident. Um, on the one hand, we hear Biden saying things like, uh, you know, things are improving between the two sides, and we see U.S. officials visiting Beijing. On the other hand, we see instance on the South China Sea, you know, um, in between the Shangri-La dialogue, and also defense ministers of the two sides uh, really in Singapore skipping uh meeting, a, a serious meeting um, between them. So, Doctor, I'm, I am confused. I'm sure a lot of people are confused, too. So where exactly are we now in terms of uh, these relations? Uh, well, that's exactly uh, the, the reality of uh, China-U.S. relations right now, <laughs> which is uh, basically, um, on the one hand, you have uh, uh, this communication line uh, trying to be reopened and having uh, keeping the, the communication exchanges. However, merely exchanging ideas doesn't mean that each side agree with the other side. So the, they're keeping both sides' positions, and that's why on other fronts, like the military, the security issues, and others like technology or many other issues, the disputes still remain. So that's why we, we still see from here and there, there are still you know, rising uh, sort of confrontations and even potential conflicts, uh, particularly dangerous maneuvers uh, in the uh, Taiwan Strait and in South China Sea. Of course, the fundamental reason is the U.S. is uh, conducting very close-by surveillance on China and also trying to flex their muscles uh, again uh, across the Taiwan Strait, showing their position on the Taiwan issue. Uh, but fundamentally, I think at this point, uh, in order to break the ice, continuous uh, communications and particularly having multiple levels of communications mm-hmm. among, you know, among people to people, between think tanks uh, and other levels, you know, other government uh, officials communicating with each other, exchanging ideas would help to understand each other and find common ground and find potential cooperative areas so that relations can be warming up and can improve. So I think it's going to be a long process. And, and at, this ver- uh, at this stage, we will still continue to see uh, conflicting signals or ima- uh, images coming out of this relationship. Mm. Uh, doctor, you mentioned, you know, the communications not only between government officials, but also be- between uh, the academic side of, uh, of both countries, as well as, uh, you know, think tanks, etc. So tell us, are things really moving? Well, uh, yes and no. On the one hand, um, there are very strong willingness, uh, from my understanding, that both sides, there are many, many um, organizations, uh, you know, uh, civil organizations, there are think tanks, academics, all kinds of people are eager to resume communications, particularly after three years of uh, pandemic. Uh, However, there are still barriers, uh, and very big barriers between the two sides, including the visa problem, including there's very little number of uh, air flights between the, the two countries, and including other barriers, invisible barriers from the U.S. side that's, uh, you know, stressing security and even calling wrongfully that China interfere into U.S. domestic politics. So anyway, these kind of uh, barriers combined prevented further expansion of communications between the two sides. So our hope is that in the coming months, days and months, mm-hmm. that these kind of communications will, will increase, will improve, and, the, and particularly the quality of exchange and community will improve. That means that both sides will emphasize each other's, uh, you know, standings and, and uh, attitudes and, uh, you know, goals. And then we'll have a, at least a common understanding and reduce the potential of conflict and more efficiently manage this bilateral relationship to reduce potential conflict. Mm-hmm. But at this moment, I think the ice is just starting to melt, but it's still a, there's a big chunk remain, and we need to there's still a lot of work remain to be done. Mm, I think it, a lot of uh, work needs to be handled very delicately, and certainly you know it is a hope 
um, not only for the people from the people of the two countries, but perhaps of the international community that, you know, talking can really happen between the two sides. Thank you, Doctor. That was Dr. Zhao Hai, Director of International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy, Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. This is World Today. We'll be right back. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China, on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Iran is reopening its embassy in Saudi Arabia on Tuesday local time. The newly appointed Iranian ambassador to Saudi Arabia is set to be present. Tensions have been high between the two countries for seven years. The reopening of the embassy seals a China-brokered deal where Tehran and Riyadh agreed to normalize ties. Now, for more, we're joined by Dr. Wang Jin. He is associate professor at Northwest University in Xi'an of China. Thank you, Dr. Wang, for talking to us again. My pleasure again. Now, uh, Doctor, we have had you on this topic multiple t- uh, times, but uh, now it is really happening, the reopening of the embassy. So what are the symbolic meanings of uh, this opening uh, in Saudi Arabia? Uh, well, we can call it the reopening of the embassy, a very, very major step mm-hmm. or a major achievement for the last uh, month's negotiations and efforts between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran and, and also including China and other regional countries for more peaceful, more stable regional order. As you mentioned, we have already discussed uh, this topic for uh, multiple times, but every time when we talk about this kind of the topic, it means that there was some kind of progress. There mm-hmm. was some kind of the little little very small or very practical achievement. So the, the final reopening of the embassy, the Iranian embassy in Saudi Arabia, is a very major uh, result of the major achievement after uh, the, the, the long term of different achievements that uh, during the last months. So it's a very important uh, sign that uh, rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran now uh, succeed. And also it is a very important suggestion that uh, it's important suggestion uh, that uh, the, the the bilateral relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran are uh, further enhanced. So mm-hmm. in the future, maybe more and more cooperative opportunities will emerge, and uh, more and more uh, bilateral trust will be consolidated. This is a very new beginning for the, the two countries, and also a new beginning for the regional uh, states because it will influence the regional order and also influence influence the regional situation in the future. Mm. Well, uh, Iranian and Saudi Arabia officials uh, have already started, you know, talking to each other. But, uh, Doctor, uh, tell us about about the technicalities, I mean, how will the reopening of the embassy further help, uh, you know, the exchanges between the two sides? Uh, it will help a lot uh, because uh, when we're talking about the embassy, it means a very diplomatic uh, rep- uh, representative establishment from one country to another. So in the modern uh, modern nation state systems, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the opening of embassy or opening of the diplomatic uh, uh, establishment, establishments in other states means a very important channel for the communication because you want to visit other countries for the bilateral relations level. If you want to visit a uh, uh, Another country that you have to go to the embassy to get the visa, to get the the official uh, documents. So it will make the bilateral exchanges of people, exchanges of information, exchanges of the goods more easily and more uh, conveniently. And also, it is it's create meanwhile to create a, a atmosphere, a kind of atmosphere, a positive atmosphere for the whole region, for the Middle East, that the regional countries they are willing to cooperate closely with the each other, and they hope to create the kind of atmosphere uh, for a more peaceful and more stable regional order in the future. So that's why we call that the embassy of reopening 
uh, will mean the lost, not only to Saudi Arabia, not only uh, to Iran's bilateral relations, but also will uh, mean a lot to a more peaceful, more stable regional order. And that kind of the peaceful and stable regional order will benefit everybody in this region. Mm. It will benefit everyone. Mm. Um, Dr. Wang, so Ali Reza Anyati, that's the name of the newly appointed Iranian ambassador to Saudi Arabia. He's a former envoy to Kuwait and a foreign ministry deputy for regional affairs. Um, so can you tell us more about this diplomat? Uh, and Ayati was uh, it was it was someone uh, is someone that's very familiar. Uh, of course, he's, he is an Iranian a senior diplomat, and he's very familiar with the Gulf region affairs. Uh, and Ayati served uh, Iran's ambassador, as you mentioned, uh, to Kuwait uh, for about five years. Uh, that, that happens about five years ago, or four or five years ago. He was the ambassador to Kuwait, and meanwhile, uh, after his uh, time in Kuwait. He served the director general of the, the, the Persian Gulf Department as the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Iran. So he also has experience uh, not only abroad, but also has a very strong uh, experience uh, inside Iran's own uh, diplomatic and foreign uh, policy system. And also he uh, served uh, as a kind of assistant to foreign ministers uh, before. So uh, he also has a very strong experiences inside the, the Iranian diplomatic circle. Uh, so so uh, before this deal, I mean, the deal announced in Beijing between uh, of the rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia in this March, and Anayati has already hinted in his uh, in, in kind of the interview to the news, he had already hinted that uh, uh, the the uh, because we know that Iranian President uh, Ibrahim Raisi visited China, he has already hinted that there might kind of. Uh, uh, the, the BRICS rule uh, between Iran and Saudi Arabia. At that time, he mentioned that uh, the, the, the kind of the roadmap will be developed to expand ties with neighboring countries. Uh, so the neighboring countries, uh, as we understand today, this, it, it, he mentioned that the neighboring country was uh, the Iran was Saudi Arabia. So after the the, the deal was reached in Beijing, and uh, Nayati also hosted as a very important representative of Iran, hosted a delegation from Saudi Arabia to Iran. So he hosted them to not only to uh, Tehran, but also to Mashhad, a very important religious city in, uh, in Iran, because Mashhad's mm -hmm. religious importance is very, very leading inside Iran and also leading in the Shia circle of right. uh, Muslim world. So Anayati was someone as, uh, someone, as we mentioned, he is very familiar with the Gulf region affairs. And also he, uh, to some extent, he, he is Responsible, responsible for the contacting Certainly. with the Saudi Arabia's part. Mm. Yeah, so he's a very important one. Certainly, he's a very seasoned and experienced diplomat that will open this new chapter for bilateral relations between the two. Thank you. That was Dr. Wang Jin at uh, Northwest University of Xi'an, China. This is World Today. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Einar Tangen, a political and economic analyst and senior fellow at the independent Taiher Institute. World Today is news without the hype and business commentary that is informed and up to date, presenting the facts and asking incisive questions. So join us if you are someone who needs to know what is happening in China as it is happening. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Turkey's new finance minister has pledged a return to rational economic policy. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has named former economy chief Mehmet Simsek as his new treasury and finance minister. Simsek's appointment could mark a departure from years of unorthodox policies, which included sticking to low interest rates despite high inflation. For more on this, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Qu Qiang, Assistant Director of International Monetary Policy at Renmin University. So, Dr. Chu, we see that Mehmet Shimshek has signaled a change in Turkish economic policy, a return to rational economic policy, as he said. So what could that look like? Well, that can be, uh, I think that can be a good news for sure. Uh, recently, if you take a look at the number of uh, Turkish economic growth, they find out uh, actually their PMI are very positive. Population keep growing, 
and more importantly, the foreign reserve is also increasing in a very steady way. Um, their CPI has been controlled, even though it's still very high, it's nearly 40% of the CPI. But compared to the peak of the last year and the year before last year, I think they're on the route returning to the normal situation. Mm. So which gives Turkey a very good precondition to normalize their monetary supply and monetary policy. So in the future, I think with the support of the uh, uh, returned or recovered uh, economic fundamental and also increased the foreign reserve, I think Central Bank of Turkish and uh, their uh, uh, the president of the Central Bank should adopt a normalized monetary uh, policy, uh, lower uh, try to lower the uh, uh, the inflation rate first, but also they can increase uh, their basic uh, benchmark interest rate. And uh, meanwhile, uh, let everything back to uh, the situation before the COVID. And Shimshek was known for his uh, market-friendly policies, but because President Eldon has said that uh, he will stick with the policies from his last term, so how significant would a move away from those be? Oh, yes, um, because Turkey actually used to face very dramatic situation. Uh, COVID hit the country very you know, severely because Turkish uh, economy depends on their national trade. Uh, it's a very important part in the uh, supply chain uh, in Europe and in Asia. So, And also, uh, they are in the geopolitical center, uh, which have a lot of conflict in the recent years. For example, Turkey used to get involved in the uh, geopolitical conflicts as well as in this nearby region with Ukraine and Russia and etc., so also that gives uh, Turkey economy another hit. And also inside of the country, they face huge changes in the fundamentals of domestic economy and politics. So all these three factors overlapping with each other and cause an impact on their economy. Mm. So in order to deal with that, uh, Erdogan has adopted not normal uh, policies to control the economy. For example, they have very strong national grip on the banking system, on a foreign reserve system, they controlled seriously and tightly over the capital account, which means it's not so much like a free market, but more dominated by the national policy. But when their economy is back into a normal, when the international uh, situation has been smoothing, so it gives Erdogan and uh, their financial chief more of the opportunity to normalize their economy, which means back to the free trade and the free market system. And Turkey's annual rate of inflation hit 80% last year, and even now it stands at uh, around 40%. So what do you think are some of the main reasons behind such a big surge of its inflation? Well, the surge of inflation is because, uh, first of all, inside of Turkey, as I just mentioned, they have three overlapping troubles. And this overlapping troubles caused the great chaos happened in Turkey. So a uh, lira just uh, depreciated greatly against the U.S. dollar. And uh, meanwhile, the interest rate hike by the America Federal Reserve also made the situation even worse. Plus, global trade has been uh, choked by the geopolitical conflicts. Transportation has been uh, jeopardized by the COVID. But now COVID is gone. And also Ukraine and Russia has limited the conflict inside uh, their own region. And also, more importantly, we see another geopolitical tension has been already eased. That is the geopolitical tension in the Gulf region. Iran, Saudi Arabia, UAE, they are making peace with each other. So the tension in the region has been greatly uh, you know, improved. That's the reason why Turkey back again become one of the original center of the productions and trade. And this has allowed Turkey to accumulate more of the foreign reserve. And with the foreign reserve, they can now control their fundamental of the economy, and then inflation can be controlled. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, this uh, currency lira has lost more than 60% of the value against the U.S. dollar in the past three years. But how does all this influence the economy in Turkey? And how do average people in the country feel about it? Well, uh, if you just a trip to Turkey, which a lot of my friends just did, um, you will find out with the falling of the inflation, even though it's just 40%, but for people, their subjective feeling for the economy and their expectation are greatly improved. They find, well, the things are not getting fast as much as before. And also with 
the economic order falling into the normal situation, and people get their job back in a market. So when people get the job back, when people get the salary on a regular basis, when the price of things are not expensive as much as before, and people will feel you know, optimistic. So you see right now inside of the Turkey, uh, the market is back. And also people feel better about before. And also international investment is back because a lot of, for example, international companies are thinking, well, still Lira is cheap uh, you know, than before. But uh, Lira is getting stronger and stronger with the foreign reserve is improving. So maybe I should get into the investment in Turkey right now when Lira is still cheap. Otherwise, when their economy is fully recovered, I would pay more for the same things. So mm-hmm. they accumulated more with foreign investment and tried to come back into the Turkey. Mm-hmm. So everything is looking like heading towards a better direction right now. Mm-hmm. And Turkey's economy is exposed to the same forces of global inflation as other countries. But it seems that President Erdogan's economic and monetary policy is different. So could you tell us more about that? Oh, yes. Uh, when they first get into this uh, hyperflation, it's not just inflation, it's hyperflation. It's just, as you said, 80% of the inflation, right? It's very rarely seen in modern history. Well, what they do is reverse uh, from the orthodoxical economics. Rather than hike up the interest rate, they choose to lower the interest rate and greatly depreciate their own currency. A lot of people say he's crazy, but I think they do have a bit of their own reason after after all because when you you know when yourself you know subjectively lower the interest rate and depreciate your own currency it's like you locked everybody inside you hit the bottom immediately when things happen nobody can swim away from it so everybody has to stay with you in the ship and then when you lowered your expectation already to the bottom and the rest of the thing to happen is to stay in the bottom or in the future to go up. Mm. And that's what happened in the Turkey right now. Because, okay, everybody thinks already, Lira has already been the cheapest in history. Cannot be even worse. So the rest are short. Let's wait and see rather than just a, you know, run away from Turkey. They stayed inside the Turkey and try to find the opportunities to save their previous investment. So this kind of a lowering expectation effect really helped the whole economy and made things, it does make things better. So when this urgent moment, uh, when this, uh, you know, the sharp turn has already turned, now they have to back to normal, uh, steadily raise up the interest rate and also try to pile up and increase their foreign reserve. And also they will open up uh, the current account furthermore and later the capital account to allow the international trade and the capital flow to happen again freely. That was Qu Qiang with Renmin University. That's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. For further discussions, find us on Twitter at CGTN Radio. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Thank you for staying with us. Bye for now.